0: those of you that don't know me my name is rick sherman it is my humble privilege to get up here periodically uh, sharing god's word with you before we go to god's word
1: let's pause for a moment of prayer lord we uh, we're thankful for this day and for this place uh, of refuge we each of us bring personal cares and uh, awareness of chaos and trouble in the world around us to a place of refuge uh, and not just this building but more even more so this family this community and our our place of comfort and peace and refuge that is in you thank you lord for your love thank you for this time to gather that thank you that we can gather freely and worship you freely so may we Indeed, worship you freely and wholeheartedly. May we sit attentively under your word, which you, uh, Rick, as he brings your word to us today, and bless him and bless us as we as we listen and are touched. In Jesus' name.
0: Thank you. Uh, so there is a typo in the bulletin. Uh, you can blame me for that. The title of the sermon is "No, Not One." However, we are reading Romans three, one through twenty. Uh, The bulletin captured next week's sermon, which actually I'd really much rather preach on, but Micah might not like that. Um, It is page 940 in your pew Bible. Um, Let's get there in a second and read it. But I'm going to say very simply is finally it ends. And by finally it ends, the first 81 verses of Romans are ugly. (laughs) Excuse me. Uh, In today's passage, there's not a positive word in it. There nary a one in the passage today. If you hang with me long enough, I will pull some positives out at, at the end. But finally, it ends. I simply have called it, without being irreverent, Paul concludes the total beatdown on humanity. All of us. Collectively, but if we look at it honestly, individually. Let's read the text. It's 940 in your pew Bible. I'm reading out of the NIV. It is uh, Romans 3, 1 through 20. What advantage then is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, trusted with the very words of God. What if some of them did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true, and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak, and prevail when you judge. But if our righteousness brings out God's, our our unrighteousness, I'm sorry, brings out God's righteousness, more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness, increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is, <coughs> excuse me, there is no one who understands, no one who sees. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the ways of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through law, through the law, we become conscious of sin. A rather uplifting passage, isn't it? I need to do a better job of vetting when I say, say I'm going to preach on a certain topic. Uh, let's go through this. Now, there is some inherent beauty, and truthfully, if you stick with me to the end, um, we have to understand the darkness to appreciate the light. <coughs> Sorry, I wasn't doing this earlier. Uh, that is what this passage does. So I want to go through it reasonably verse by verse, but I do really want to park in there under your heading uh, in verse 9, uh, no one is righteous. Uh, nothing positive in this passage I mentioned. How many are righteous? None. Uh, Paul starts off here comparing Jews and Gentiles, this kind of concludes Don Stuber's sermon from last week, um, and he says, the Jews have it better because they have the very words of God. Uh, and King James translates that, oracles, and I listed, listened to a great sermon um, by a British gentleman and he, the oracles of God, and it was a really good thing. And we find that verse four times in scripture, or that phrase, oracles of God. But what did the Jews do with it? What did the Jews do with all their knowledge? For this, I went to famous theologian Friedrich Samuel Scheuermann. I used to call him dad. Dad had a lot of phrases. And this was one of his favorite. Knowing's not enough. The Jews had it. Most of the Jews knew it. The scribes and Pharisees most definitely did. But what did they do with the oracles of God? They knew it. Verse 3 and 4. Here the positivity continues. Every man is a liar. Verse 5 and 6, God judges. Verse 7 and 8, our condemnation is deserved. God is faithful. You might read that heading, and that sounds positive to himself. And verse 9 then says, Paul says, in light of this, and I believe he's going all the way back to Romans 1, in light of this, what shall we conclude? There is no one righteous. Verses 9 through 12. Jews and Gentiles alike... Under sin. As it is written, Paul actually quotes a number of Old Testament in, uh, in the next few verses. Here's just three in the next few verses. We'll get to more. No one understands. No one seeks. All have turned away. And become worthless. Does good. How many? Not even one. those of you that are note takers again I mentioned I didn't get the notes in the bulletin I want to look at three things um, how we sin, three different ways parts 1, 2, and 3 and truthfully if you get through to the end I do want to then juxtapose how Jesus handles those three issues so we definitely will get to some positive because if we left here just reading verses Romans 3, 1 through 20 it would be a bad, bad day we sin with our tongues verses 13 and 14 Deceit. Poison of viper on our lips. And again, this is where Paul is referencing directly verbatim passages. Of cursing and bitterness. You ever know that guy? I've known a couple in my life, um, one fairly recently, uh, that uses profanity for punctuation. Uh, it's it, uh, Basically, instead of a period, it's You can figure it out. Uh, So it's it's every sentence and then oftentimes you start the sentence with one and you try and wedge in a couple profanities in between. And you say to yourself, well, that's not me. Well, good, good. And if I compare myself to that gentleman, I'll be forthright up here. The odd time, it feels good to swear. It feels good for about the second I swear and afterwards I realize that accomplished nothing. When I compare myself to that gentleman, I'm good. I don't swear very much. This is our standard. This is our standard for our tongue. That word you say you shouldn't say, what is it? It's sin. You know, to do, you know to say something, and you should, and you don't. Encourage someone. What is it? It's sin. Who are you comparing yourself to? You comparing yourself to the people? I'm not deceitful. Oh, the poison of viper on my lips. Cursing and bitterness. That's not me. I'm sorry to tell you it is. Actually, don't take my word for it. We just read it. You sin with your tongue. There's no one righteous. No, not one. How do we sin part two, verses 15 through 16? We sin with our feet. Swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery. The way of peace is not known, quoting Isaiah. And again, you say to yourself, I don't do that. You swift to shed blood. You swift to ruin and misery? Way of peace not known, is that you? No, right? All of us, Most of us, I would say, here are good people. Where's our standard? Where's our standard right here? You sin with your feet? No, I don't sin with my feet. You ever gone somewhere you shouldn't have gone? You ever gone to the store? If I bought that and spent that money, what would I do? I bought it anyways. Sin with your feet? No, I don't sin with my feet. Yeah, you do, actually. Right here. I wish it weren't so. And if you think about sin, we'll get to that in a second. You sin with your feet. Uh, How do we sin? Part three. Verse 18. We sin with our heart. No fear of God. Psalm 36.1, he's quoting here. The fear of the Lord is what? Proverbs seven, Proverbs, Proverbs 9.18, it's the beginning of wisdom. I would propose very simply that the inverse of that is correct. If you don't fear God, it is the beginning of stupidity. It is the beginning of death. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There is no fear of God. Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful or a dreadful thing to what? Fall into the hands of an almighty God. In James 2.19, the demons know. The demons know and tremble. They fear God. You say to yourself, well, I don't do that. I don't have that. I don't sin enough to do that. This is for the chemically addicted, right? This is for the person that's got a long-term addiction problem, whatever it is. They've been sinning so long, they can't see their sin. They've justified it to themselves over the course of days, weeks, months, years. Probably doesn't describe a whole lot of us in here, does it? Brian hep not very happy with you you preached 2 weeks ago you convinced me that i don't judge others you also convinced me i'm professional at judging those that judge others and i do it so much and i might add i do it so well that i have totally lost the fear of god when i do it it's sin And when you do something, and when you're confronted with your sin, understand the fear of God, who you're dealing with. I don't do those things. You do. There's no one righteous. No, not one. In our defense, how's that? I wonder if we don't have a warped sense of perfection on this earth. Well, what are you doing here, Rick? Perfect games aren't perfect. Anybody here in baseball? Perfect game, right? Someone here is a fan. (laughs) Perfect game in baseball, 27 up, 27 down. Perfect game. Is it really? That 380-foot foul ball the guy hit, pitcher mean to throw that pitch? Did the pitcher put that pitch right where he went? That line drive that got hammered at the third baseman and he dove and caught it, pitcher mean to make that pitch? Did a pitcher throw a pitch and think, man, I hope that guy doesn't swing because that's not the pitch I wanted and it's in the wrong spot. But at the end of the day, perfect game's 27 up and 27 down. I don't think the pitcher pitched a perfect game. I don't think he put the ball where he wanted every single time. Wouldn't it be 27 pitches? Or would it be 81 pitches all for strikes? Perfect days aren't perfect. We use the phrase, I do. Oh, it's perfect. Everything was perfect. Was it really? Nothing went wrong that day at all. Everything went 100% perfect. Uh, the perfect 10, 1976, Nadia, Montreal Olympics. First perfect 10 scored in gymnastics. Or we use the phrase, in a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being bad, 10 being perfect. Is there anything perfect on earth? Is there anything truly perfect? This passage that we've read makes it crystal clear to me. We offer God nothing. What are you bringing to the table? Are you helping God in any way? This is his standard. We want to compare ourselves to each other. Better yet to the person that's incarcerated. The person on television we don't like. Better yet to the person that we know who does sin. This is our standard. And God says, you're bringing me Nothing. You're worthless. We read it. We don't want to talk about it. You don't hear this on social, uh, social media, certainly. You don't hear this on TV. The televangelists aren't reading out of Romans 3, chapter 1. You're not giving them money. I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. Of what true worth and value are you? Romans 3, verse 20 chapter, verses. No, not one. No, not one. On your best day, your best day on this earth, you're bringing nothing to God. The best summation I have, if I haven't been negative enough, I'm done. Hopefully in a moment here being negative. The first 81 verses of Romans. This is the best summation. It's a song. I don't believe for a moment these gentlemen are theologians or we're making a point of making a spiritual point. But this, to me, is succinctly the best summation of the first 81 verses of Romans. I'm on the highway to hell. No stop signs. Speed limit, nobody's going to slow me down. Like a wheel, going to spin it. Nobody's going to mess me around. Hey, paying my dues. I'm on the highway to hell. Folks, we have to park here for a minute. Because we have to understand the depths of our depravity to have any hope in understanding the price that was paid for us, to have any hope in understanding how totally, totally hopelessly lost you were, of no ability to help yourself, of no ability to get all of your friends to help yourself. We were dead, hopelessly lost without Christ. And he did it. We got and offered him nothing. We gave him deceitful tongues, we gave him wicked, we gave him bad feet, we had no fear of the Lord. We have to understand our depravity if we have any hope of understanding the joy of Christ and the price that he paid for us. Is this resonating with anybody? It's not fun to talk about the depths of it. It's not fun to look into my heart. And realize how wicked I am. And I think I'm not that bad. And sure I'm not when I compare myself to certain people. But it doesn't matter who I compare myself to. This book tells me I am not righteous. I am not worth it. I have sinned. I have the venom of a viper on my tongue. And Jesus came and saved me. Because I had no hope of anything on my own. Other than being owed. Jesus' tongue. Let's look at this for a few minutes. I want to look at Jesus' tongue. Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost. That's me. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus is equating himself as deity here, by the way. I've been doing a little reading on some Muslims, and they say Jesus doesn't assert his deity in Scripture very often. He most certainly does if you look for it. Uh, Jesus says, come, all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. And Jesus says, take up your cross. And Jesus says, let the little children come to me. That's what Jesus says. Jesus' feet. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He did it. He came on earth with his feet. I love Luke 2. Luke 2 is where they capture... um, Give me one second. Mary and Joseph lose Jesus. A well, little lack of a better term, they lost him. Uh, you ever lost your child? I don't know if we ever have for any period of time. Mary and Joseph lost Jesus for three days. Jesus is 12. Okay, 12-year-old may have ability to get along, but three days. And they find him where? Anybody remember? And what is Jesus' words to his parents? Where else did you think I'd be? Where else would my feet take me than to do God's work and go to his temple? I'm trying to picture Mary and Joseph. I would think pretty frazzled at that point. Anybody here had a teenager or a pre-teenager? The last thing I want is a little sarcasm from my teen at that point. (laughs) But Jesus says, where else would I be? My feet are taking me about God's work. Where else would I be? eats and drinks with sinners that's where his feet took him to us I deal with the public maybe not the best job for me but I do Uh, I'm not the most patient man the public is exhausting Uh, we talked yesterday at dinner somebody said there's no such thing as stupid questions and I immediately said that is inaccurate (laughs) there's actually lots and lots of stupid questions at the end of a long day, Jesus was healing people. Jesus was fed. I can't remember in this passage if it was 3,000 or 5,000. Fed them, spent the entire day with them. Where did Jesus' feet take him at the end of the day? Jesus went alone to pray. Where did Jesus' feet take him? My feet take me to my garage. I turn on the baseball game and I sit down and surf the net. Jesus' feet took him alone to pray. Where did Jesus' feet take him? Gethsemane. I'm not talking on the way out, folks. Whose feet took Jesus to Gethsemane on the way in? Knowing what he was facing. Knowing what was going to happen tomorrow. Jesus walked in to Gethsemane of his own volition. That's where Jesus' feet took him. For what? To save no one. The fear of God. Jesus said, the son of man. Again, referring back to his deity. Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. Seeks and saves. And Jesus clears the temple. We read that a couple times he clears the temple. Why did he? I think the predominant thinking is there was extortion going on. Um, There was certainly deceit. People were, what you don't know the story, you had to to bring sacrifice to the priests. And the priest had to deem that the sacrifice was... Appropriate, and then the priest would say, "No, yours doesn't qualify, but I've got one here that does. Fortunately, it's on sale for five times as much as it is, and you have to sacrifice this one." Um, extortion. I think there's another element to why people. Those people were creating a physical barrier. The Gentiles couldn't get; they could only go so far into the temple. Those people had the table set up in front. They were physically holding back people from getting to God. Not only physically holding them back, they were holding them back spiritually. And Jesus said, you will not hold anybody back from seeking me. And he made a whip and he got them out. Sometimes I wonder, folks, it's coming, it's here already. Am I really willing? I'm not suggesting we make whips and start doing things. But am I really willing to stand on the entirety of this book at all costs, any cost, this book in its entirety? it's coming. We have to stand on here. Because what do I fear more? Do I fear man? Do I fear repercussions? Or do I fear him who can kill body and soul? Are we willing to stand on this book in the fear of the Lord, in rightful reverence of this book? No one comes to the Father. Jesus has the audacity. Who can say this word other than Jesus? No one comes to the Father except what? But by me. Jesus, again, asserting his deity. Jesus simply says, I am. I am. The Alpha and the Omega. Folks, we had to go to the negative to realize the positive. And I feel the audience is still down. But understand, Jesus came. Jesus talked. Jesus came with his feet. And Jesus is God. And he has no fear of God because he is God. And he came for us. And he shed his blood for us. No one that was righteous. I have a different song now. A better song. And no, I'm not going to sing it. But I'm just going to let you read the words. But this is the summation, I believe, when we include Jesus into this discussion. piled up the wrath with our feet with our tongues and no fear of god but here's where we get and there's why by thy free grace O lord alone it's the only way no not one jesus last words on the earth it's finished it's written twice in john chapter 19 This is a Greek word, I can't remember if it's Greek or Aramaic, I'm sorry. I'm not going to try and pronounce it. It's an accounting term used in those days also. It can be translated, it is finished, but it can also be translated, paid in full. It's paid in full. Jesus' last words. All that death, all that sin, all that unrighteousness piled up on your behalf, on my behalf, it's paid in full. In full. Through what work of mine? None. We are going to close with a brief video and then the worship team is going to come up during the video. I was going to paraphrase it and try and do, the video, or try and do it myself, but why do that when he's here? Folks, we've all sinned. None of us are righteous and that's the bad news. But the good news is a man came and he wasn't just a man and he died on that cross, not that one, he died on a cross, and he shed his blood, and he's the only one that could have done it. There's nothing of yours that you did, the only one. And how much of your debt did he pay? All of it. Paid in full. God bless.